Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Congestive heart failure, have you heard that term? What does it really mean? Is the heart getting congested? Is it truly failing? Are there different types of heart failure? And once you're diagnosed with this, what can be done to help you? Well, today we're going to explore all different aspects of what it means when somebody has heart failure. We are lucky enough to have one of the physicians from the Queen's Heart Physician Practice, Dr. Deep Banerjee. You just came here a few months ago from Stanford, and you've mentioned that your mission really is to identify and help treat some of these people who get this mysterious diagnosis of congestive heart failure that's clearly not a mystery to you. This is your area of specialty. But sometimes people are not really certain what that means. So thank you for explaining all to put you in the hot seat and joining us today on The Body Show. Thank you for the invitation. Now, what is a heart failure specialist. How did you get to be one of these? You obviously went to medical school and you did some additional training, but what sort of extra special training is required to be a heart failure specialist? That's a great question. And heart failure specialization is only a recent phenomenon, actually. Uh, even though heart transplant and left ventricular assist devices or heart pumps have been around for a while, the specialization only came around in, or the formal specialization came out in 2010, which is when I was uh, um, boarded in heart failure. So to be a heart failure specialist, as you mentioned, you have to do cardiology fellowship, but you have to do an extra year of specialized training where you focus on patients who have heart failure. And we'll explore more of that today, what that means. But essentially, it means seeing those patients throughout the year, patients who are not that sick, uh, but may have uh, um, reasons for their heart failure that are not common uh, or more unique. And then patients who are very sick who might need end-stage therapies for heart failure. They've gone beyond medications and need devices or a heart transplant. So let's talk about what the heart normally does. We know the heart pumps. And so that's the usual function of a heart. It has to squeeze blood and bring it to the rest of the body. But there's different aspects of the heart pumping cycle. What are those, and how does that help us to differentiate the two different types of heart failure? Well, you've actually put it beautifully, and that's what I explain to all of my patients. The heart is a pump, and I think of it simplistically. It is pretty simple. Um, but not only does it pump blood to the rest of the body, it has to receive blood from the rest of the body. And I think that's a neglected part of dealing with heart failure. Because uh, if you think about it, we think of systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure. The top number is systolic. The bottom number is diastolic. So when the heart is pumping, that's systole. Uh, when the heart is relaxing, that's diastole. And in between, the, heart, the blood in the heart has to go between different chambers uh, through valves, which also can malfunction. So there's many different kinds of ways that a heart can malfunction. It could be a problem with pumping. The heart muscle is too weak. It can be a problem with relaxing. The heart muscle is too stiff for any number of reasons. Or it could be a problem with the valves or even the blood vessels within the heart that can manifest as either systolic or diastolic heart failure or both. So function and structure and plumbing and all sorts of things, these all have to function perfectly and work correctly for someone to just maintain their average daily existence. I think that's a very good way to put it. And one part I neglected is that they, all of this has to be synchronized. And so we don't think of it too often. The heart is a pump, but it actually has an electrical system, just like your house has an electrical system. And if that electrical system malfunctions, then the heart can also malfunction. 
which can lead to this this problem where it's out of sync and therefore could potentially make it harder to do its job and pump. Right. I mean, it, it's beautiful to see the heart pumping. And what's even more beautiful is to think that there's three different layers of muscle within the heart that have to move in concert and also two sides of the heart, the right side and the left side that have to move in concert. And if they don't, you have what's called dyssynchrony. It's a very simple term, but basically it means that the heart is less efficient and it pumps blood less efficiently. So the other organs in the body don't get enough blood. So let's talk about the percent of blood. When, when we look at the different types of heart failure, a lot of people might think, first of all, my heart's failing, it's going to stop. What do we actually mean when we say heart failure? It's a scary term. And I think the scariness of the term was warranted initially because when people were initially diagnosed with heart failure, you know, maybe one in five would make it uh, in, in five years. That's changed with medical therapies and device therapies, which we'll talk about. So I hope today at the end of the talk, uh, we won't be so scared about heart failure. And what it really means, and I want to emphasize this, is that it's a spectrum of disease. Uh, there are some people who are walking around with what one would term heart failure, but they're actually feeling fine. They don't it doesn't impact their daily lives. So the hope is that you can um, address it at that early stage or even if, they have, if a patient has a few symptoms before it gets to what people think about heart failure, uh, what you see on the television advertisements where someone's drowning in water and swelling up uh, with their legs. Um, that would so, be severe. That would be severe. In that case. But mm -hmm. we could catch it early when somebody just has beginnings of it and maybe change that trajectory by either treating them with medications or finding out the cause or lifestyle or some element of that that might help them. Right. I mean, what I would tell all the patients who came to my clinic is a lot of patients get referred to me for a heart transplant or a heart pump. But the first thing I tell them is, hey, we're going to try to avoid a heart transplant or a heart pump. And if you think about it, uh, we don't put enough uh, emphasis on preventive medicine, not just in heart failure, but in cardiology and in medicine in general. So there are ways to attack the problem and the roots of the problems before they develop into worsening heart failure. So when we talk about heart failure, we're really talking about a fundamental problem of blood delivery. You're not getting enough blood to the rest of the body or for what you want to do. So let's talk about common forms, systolic and diastolic. Which one is more predominant? Funnily, uh, some people think, most people think that if you have heart failure, your heart is weak, so that systolic should predominate. If you look at the epidemiologic data throughout the United States and throughout the world, actually half of heart failure is diastolic. So half of people have systolic heart failure, half of people have diastolic, and there's actually some overlap between the two, which is even worse. And it turns out, so some people would think, well, if you have systolic heart failure, your pump is weak. That must be worse. Those people must not live as long as people with diastolic heart failure. It's actually not true. Systolic and heart failure, uh, systolic and diastolic heart failure patients have a very similar trajectory in terms of life expectancy and symptoms. And part of it is because of why people develop systolic and diastolic heart failure. It turns out that with diastolic heart failure, which is problems with the relaxation of the heart again, stiffness of the heart, there are many causes like high blood pressure, age, diabetes and kidney failure. And those tend to run together and compromise someone's overall health to the degree where if you have systolic heart failure, you might just have one issue, the systolic heart failure, and it doesn't bother it, it's The cumulative effect is not as much as uh, all the comorbidities that you could have that are attendant to diastolic heart failure. 
So let's talk first about the diastolic, because that seems to be one that people are often not aware of or maybe don't get diagnosed with often enough or may not be recognized by, by their primary care provider or in any sort of a situation like that. What are the symptoms of diastolic heart failure? What would be some of the early symptoms that need to be addressed early on that identify maybe a mild case? So it's a good question, and it's tough to answer because many of the symptoms of heart failure, whether systolic or diastolic, are similar to you know, the fatigue of daily life. If you're tired, you could have diastolic heart failure. If you're short of breath when you're doing normal activities, if you start to have swelling in your legs, now that's not something that you should see normally, that might, all of those might be signs of diastolic heart failure. Could they also be signs of systolic heart failure? Absolutely. So just because you have the symptoms and you have a diagnosis, you may not know which one it is. Presumably your doctor would know, but you may not be aware of which type of heart failure you have. Absolutely. And I think that's why it's important, as you mentioned at the, at the beginning of the show, to have a good primary care physician or any physician who knows your condition and knows your body um, and to have a good dialogue with them so that they can tease out what's going on. Many of the times it won't be heart failure. And in fact, a lot of what we do is exclude other causes uh, of fatigue or shortness of breath that aren't heart failure. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Deep Banerjee. He's from the Queen's Heart Physician Practice. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about these are the symptoms. What should you do? And what are some of the early treatments that can be provided if you or a loved one is diagnosed with either systolic or diastolic heart failure? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Deep Banerjee. He is from the Queen's Heart Physician Practice. And we've been talking today about congestive heart failure, actually heart failure in general, congestive heart failure being a type of that. And we're talking about what are the signs and symptoms? There's two different kinds of failure, pump failure, relaxation failure. What are some of the reasons that someone may see their physician or see their provider and get diagnosed with this? And so far, We've talked a little bit about fatigue and being short of breath with doing activities, leg swelling, a lot of the things that people may notice they have re without having a diagnosis of heart failure, but a sign that they need to get this checked out. So if you get, if you are seen by your provider and somebody is identified as having a heart problem, how would it be differentiated if it's a systolic or a diastolic heart failure? What are some of the tests that often are done to help identify what the source of the problem is. So there are many tests that are done in common uh, to determine whether someone has heart failure. One is a simple blood test called BNP, or brain natriuretic peptide. It's a hormone that's actually, or a protein that's actually released by the heart um, in response to extra fluid in the body. The problem is it doesn't differentiate between systolic or diastolic heart failure because it's elevated in both of those conditions. The fundamental test that we use to differentiate between systolic and diastolic heart failure is an ultrasound of the heart or an echocardiogram. It's probably one of the most common tests that we use in cardiology, and not just to detect heart failure, but to look at other uh, problems with the heart, like valvular issues. So one way we measure heart function, at least the squeezing function of the heart, is 
by a term that we call ejection fraction. It's very um, interesting because I think a lot of people get scared when they hear their ejection fraction uh, in my clinic and they fixate on it. They say, well, my ejection fraction is 60%. That's not good, right? But it turns out that an ejection fraction of 60% is actually normal. It's not out of 100%. A normal person's heart will push 60% of the blood or 55 to 60% of the blood out with each beat. So when we say that someone's ejection fraction is 30%, that doesn't mean they're 30% of normal. They're about half of normal. But most people with heart, when we talk about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or diastolic heart failure, it's another uh, similar term, those people typically have normal ejection fractions, but their heart output still isn't normal. So this percentage is not, that's something I often have to remind people, it's not out of 100. So that you can almost double it. So when you think about getting a grade, everybody wants to get a perfect grade of 100, and that's equivalent to 60. So if you have a 30%, then it's kind of like you have 60% of your function out of 100%, and then the math gets confusing for, for a lot of folks. But do not fear when we say that you have an EF of a certain percentage, it doesn't mean out of 100. So that's an important thing for people to realize. And you mentioned that in some cases, even with diastolic heart failure, it could be normal. But because they're getting the blood out doesn't mean that the blood is getting in. So when they can't relax their heart to fill it up, the amount might be getting out, but it's still not very much in total. When we're talking about the this heart failure in general, when somebody comes in, you said they get an ejection, they get an echocardiogram. It's a wonderful non-invasive test. There's no needles involved. There's really not a lot of preparation on the part for the patients. And there's no radiation. It's an ultrasound, very safe test, gives you a lot of information about the heart. Not painful at all, simple to do. Correct. So you do that test, and let's just say it gives you some information. What would be some of the treatments that you could consider for people who might have very early mild heart failure? What would be some of the things that they should do for themselves physically or medically? And are there medicines that treat people at the early stages to help prevent this from progressing? Yes, I think it's a great question. And what I'll talk about first are treatments that we use for both early systolic and diastolic heart failure, because it turns out that both of those conditions are basically fluid retention conditions. When you have systolic heart failure and you're not pumping enough blood, even if you have an ejection fraction of, let's say, 50%, which is you know 80 or 90% of normal, the other parts of the body don't get enough blood. And in particular, the kidneys don't get enough blood. And this is the same as for diastolic heart failure. When the kidneys don't get enough blood, they say, hey, I'm not getting enough blood. How can I get more blood? Well, the kidneys regulate blood volume. So they say, okay, we're not getting enough blood. Let's just hold on to blood. But they don't hold on to blood. They hold on to water. And the way they hold on to water is by holding on to salt. So one of the fundamental treatments for both early systolic and diastolic heart failure is not medications. It's actually cutting the salt out of your diet. There's a lot of controversy, as you may know, about how much salt we should have in our diet and, and this and much that. Much less than we're having in general. Exactly. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the, the natives of the Amazon rainforest hardly have any salt. And guess what? They don't tend to have much cardiovascular disease. And so... Patients sometimes get surprised when they come see me in clinic because I talk to them for half an hour not about medications, but about trying to reduce the amount of salt in their diet. It's not easy, uh, but it's one of the easy, it's one of the simplest things and, and effective things one can do to treat heart failure. And if you're not into medications, it's a great way to get yourself feeling better and avoid medication use. So 
cut the salt. That's right. What about activity? Activity is incredibly important. Uh, when I um, talk to patients and, uh, and, and near the end of clinic, they usually ask me, well, I shouldn't get my heart rate up. That's going to hurt my heart, right? Or, wow, I get tired. Maybe I shouldn't be doing much exercise. Quite the contrary. Uh, every single patient I see in my clinic, whether they're on the cusp of a heart transplant or they just have mild heart failure, I tell them to walk every single day of the week, 30 minutes a day. And I think it's different for every patient. Patients who are very sick, they can't do 30 minutes all at once. And so what I tell them to do is walk 10 minutes in the morning, 10 in the afternoon, 10 in the evening. You can go to a park and you can walk from bench to bench. And when you get tired, you just sit down. And then when you have rested, you go again. That way you can build endurance. And there's a lot of research and literature out there uh, suggesting that people who have who, who exercise more can train their hearts and get and their heart function can improve. So it's not a lot of people would think it's a lost cause, but it really isn't. And the physical activity you mentioned, build your endurance, actually can result in your heart getting stronger. Again, uh, if you're interested in minimizing medications, one of the causes, as you had already talked about, of both diastolic and systolic heart failure is high blood pressure. So a lot of people can modulate their blood pressure, not so much with medications, but, but by cutting salt and by exercise. And that's one way to prevent early stages of heart failure from progressing to more severe stages. Now, let's say you get to the part where, okay, you have the moderate or maybe even the severe stages. There are some medications that can also be used supportively to help people with their other lifestyle changes. They're lowering in the salt and they're increasing activity. Those medicines have changed over the last few years, and they've gotten better. What kind of actions do they have in the body? So great question. And I think, again, you have to sort of separate diastolic heart failure and systolic heart failure. There aren't many evidence-based treatments for diastolic heart failure, although they are coming uh, down the pipeline. For systolic heart failure, there is a lot of evidence for the medications we use. And I had mentioned that one of the fundamental problems in heart failure is the kidneys don't get enough blood. But the other organ that's important is the brain. And I think everyone would agree that the brain is very important and powerful. And when it doesn't get enough blood, it sends hormones to the heart to make it work harder. Everyone knows that hormone is called adrenaline. So when you're crossing the street on uh, the Leaky Leaky Highway and a car is about to hit you, you can jump out of the way. Adrenaline can be life-saving. But in heart failure, the problem is adrenaline is there all the time. And what happens is it wears out the heart. It's like beating a dead horse. You have this muscle that's already weak, and then it gets pushed and pushed over the edge until it gives out. So... The treatment for heart failure, the medical treatment, is to block the effect of adrenaline on the heart. And we have great medications for that that have decades of experience. The first one is a class of medication called beta blockers. And my mentor uh, was involved in uh, the early clinical trials with uh, carvedilol, one of the beta blockers. That class directly blocks the effect of adrenaline. But as you mentioned, there are other classes of medications that block adrenaline, like uh, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, and angiotensin receptor blockers. One of the more recent medications uh, that came out is called spironolactone that also helps block adrenaline and reduce salt retention. But heart failure is exciting. You know, I think that uh, people are living longer, people are feeling better because new medications are coming out. So one of the new medications that came out is called Secupitril Valsartan. It's a combination medication. And uh, everyone in the heart failure community was excited because it prolonged people's lives with heart failure and made them feel better. So we have another tool in our arsenal to help uh, people uh, treat people with heart failure. There are other medications that are coming out that are investigational that directly make the heart stronger. Uh, there's a medication called Omicamptive that basically 
kickstarts your heart and uh, gives your heart more rows in the uh, more oars in the boat, so you can row harder. And we're hoping that that trial will show improvement, so that people can not just live longer but feel better. You're the only person I know who says heart failure is exciting, uh, but that's for a good reason because there's new treatments out there. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Deep Banerjee from Queen's Heart Physician Practice. And when we come back, we are going to talk some more about some of the other things that are uh, coming down the pike, ways that we can help people live longer and hopefully enjoy life more, even if they do get a diagnosis of heart failure and how they can help to take care of themselves. And these new medications and devices can help to assist. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Today we're talking about heart failure with our heart failure specialist, Dr. Deep Banerjee from Queen's Heart Physician Practice. And right before the break, we were talking about medications that are up and coming that can be used to treat heart failure, predominantly systolic heart failure because that's where we have a lot of the evidence, but some new things that might come out for that diastolic heart failure condition as well. Now you mentioned this sort of Kickstarter, Jumpstarter for the heart. Is there ever a point where... So many medications are trying to make the heart work harder that it kind of just burns itself out and gives up and just can't do that? Or are the medications more protective to help the heart to function by giving it some extra assistance? Well, actually both. And so it turns out that the beta blockers that we talked about, remember they block the effect of adrenaline, but adrenaline has positive reason uh, to be in the body. It actually can make the heart pump stronger. So when I start patients on a beta blocker, I tell them, you might feel more tired initially, but after a while, you'll get used to it in a couple of weeks, and you'll, it's like changing gears in a truck, and you'll have more energy. So we sacrifice maybe some short-term discomfort for a long-term gain. And it turns out that I, I, I wish that every single patient responded to the medications, but sometimes patients' hearts don't respond. And so you're absolutely right. Sometimes the heart is so worn out that it actually can't tolerate the beta blockers, the ACE inhibitors, the spironolactone. That's when we know that that person needs something more. Either they need one of these more investigational therapies that hopefully can help us avoid a heart pump or a heart transplant, or they're going to need something like device-based therapy to survive and have a good quality of life. Now, when I think back to when I was in medical school, and now I'm dating myself, but this was sort of in the 90s. And then even when I was doing my residency in the late 90s, there was this whole concept of of the fact that, you know, if you had heart failure and there's different stages and they would use these classifications, New York heart classifications, and they said if you had stage, you know, four heart failure and your heart wasn't pumping more than, you know, 10, 15% at most, you had a, a very limited lifespan. And nowadays there are some ways that that can be altered, either through some of the medicines that can improve the heart function or through some of the other devices, which weren't even around when I was in school. So what are the ideas behind these devices? And are they things that we have available here locally? Or if somebody gets to that degree of failure, are they really looking at going somewhere like the mainland? Great question. And again, I would divide it into devices and therapies for diastolic heart failure, the stiffness of the heart, and systolic heart failure. For diastolic heart failure, 
the way I would describe it is the heart is stiff. And if you go to a kid's birthday party and you're blowing up a balloon, if you have a stiff balloon, it requires more pressure to blow it up. So one of the problems in diastolic heart failure is there's too much pressure in the heart, and it backs up and goes into your lungs and into your legs, and that's why the water spills over and people get symptomatic. So one of the newer treatments that's coming out is actually reducing the pressure by putting a small tube between two chambers of the heart called the atria, the top two chambers of the heart, an intraatrial shunt. And that was shown in a pilot study to actually improve symptoms for patients with diastolic heart failure, which was really exciting because up till this point, we don't have an evidence-based therapy to improve the lives of patients with diastolic heart failure. So that's one thing that I think will be coming out soon, uh, but it's still in clinical trials. It's not FDA approved. And so it's not yet even on the mainland in terms of uh, an acceptable therapy. For systolic heart failure, there are, remember we talked about uh, the electrical problems with the heart and the, pro- the problems with dyssynchrony. You can get a special type of pacemaker if you qualify that can uh, synchronize your heart and allow you to live longer and feel better. That is available here uh, in Hawaii. When you get to beyond pacemakers or beyond shunts, you're talking about either a heart transplant or a heart pump. So I ran the heart pump program at Stanford. Part of the reason I came here is to bring such a program to Hawaii. We don't have it here yet, but I'm hoping that we'll have that soon so that people from Hawaii don't have to go to the mainland to get that specialized care. Well, we got you here. That's right. So all we have to do is bring the pump along with you and ta-da. It sounds simple. I realize it's a lot more complicated than that. Well, we have to build a program. And believe me, you wouldn't want me to put in the pump because I'm not a surgeon. (laughs) So so we need a whole team. It's really a team-based approach. Uh, It's not just about me. Um, And what I'm excited is that I think we have that team here in Hawaii. And you can start building it. That's right. That's fantastic because it is something where when we talk about devices, that isn't necessarily something we have available here yet, that concept of the left ventricular assistive devices. They're called LVADs in the medical terms. And so that's something that would be exciting to bring here because there are some folks who might not be able to go to the mainland and stay there. And in fact, if you have one of these devices and nobody knows how to handle it here locally, it might be dangerous actually to live here unless you have that that qualified team that can help manage that situation and know what to do if something goes wrong. I agree completely. And luckily, we've had that team here taking care of LVAD patients, uh, actually, that were implanted at Stanford and brought back here. But my worry is that there's so many people in Hawaii who can't fly to California or anywhere else in the mainland, stay for three months, and bring a family member with them. If we did it the other way around and we asked someone from California to come to Hawaii for an LVAD or a transplant, they couldn't do it financially. It's a big imposition for patients. And I really think Hawaiians deserve the best care in Hawaii. And then the final, if it absolutely has to happen, we're talking transplant. Right. And that has to be done elsewhere. Currently, yes, although there is a kidney transplant uh, program in Hawaii as well as a liver transplant program. There was a heart transplant program in Hawaii not too long ago, and so that might be the future. So you're going to bring them both here. I'm putting a lot of stress on you. I would hope so, and again, it's not about me. I think that Hawaiians deserve the best, and I think that they deserve to have their care in their home or near their home. Uh, That's what heart failure is all about. I would be very happy if no patient had to get a transplant or a left ventricular assist device. Uh, I would be very happy if they could just get their care at home. So that's what our mission is, is to get heart failure patients their care at home, whatever that care might be. 
and really to help them through that whole spectrum from initial diagnosis to management of their current situation, hopefully helping to prevent progression of their heart failure to those advanced stages, and then looking at trying to help provide them with whatever their advanced stage may lead to, whatever assistive devices they may need in the process. Exactly. And really empowering the patient because patients are smart. You know, they know their body better than we do, and they know um, what medications work and what therapies work for them. We want to make sure that we provide the best care locally right here in the islands. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today and for coming all the way from California and planting yourself right here in the islands, and hopefully we're going to keep you here forever. It's a pleasure, and I hope to be here forever. All right, you heard it here first. He's staying. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. I want to thank Dr. Deep Banerjee from the Queen's Heart Physician Practice and also David Chong, our engineer. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show.